Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, and that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and the woman named Demarius, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are... Uh looking at the book of Acts and consider various conversion stories, and we come to Paul's ministry in Athens. This is an example of the gospel being presented to people 
without um, any sort of biblical worldview, without Bible knowledge, uh, much like, I think, becoming more common in our culture today. So this is a good passage for us to look and ask ourselves, how can we, as believers today, communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense and in the way that changes people's lives? Apostle Paul is uh, alone in Athens. He, uh, <clears throat> he gets here first. He's waiting for the rest of the team to get there. And uh, he engages with not just the people at the local synagogue, the religious people, but also with the people in the marketplace, including some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He's then invited to present the gospel in sort of a more of a formal presentation to the Areopagus, which is a council. It's sort of like a court It's a group of men, it's leadership of the city that determine uh, uh, religious and legal disputes and moral issues, and so he's able to present the gospel to them, and of course some respond by mockery, but some respond by faith, and at least one philosopher and another well-known woman become believers. So let's look at our passage from Paul's perspective. I want us to kind of try to get into his mind a little bit and in his heart and see how he was able to communicate the gospel to this particular audience. So let's look at Paul's heart first, then we'll look at his move, then his speech, and then his Lord. His heart, his move, his speech, his Lord. All right, so at the time of Paul's visit, Athens was well past its golden age, and yet it was still a magnificent city, one of the intellectual and cultural centers of the Roman world, along with Rome and Alexandria. It still remained, um, still maintained that reputation of, of, a, of a place where wisdom dwells, where culture is, where you can get educated, you can grow, you can be exposed to all sorts of ideas. Even in our text, we're told that they love to talk about new ideas. There's always this conversation happening in the city. But Paul's reaction to Athens was not admiration, but rather grief. So look at verse 16 with me. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul's spirit was distressed, it was troubled, it was stirred up by the idolatry that he saw in the city. And even though Athens was typical of any ancient city of the time, it was even more idolatrous than others. It's full of various temples and altars and all sorts of deities, idols were worshipped there. One visitor to Athens at this time observed that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So if you were visiting somebody, it was easier to find a god than whoever you were visiting. There were temples dedicated to specific deities like the Parthenon, where the goddess Athena was worshipped. Obviously, it was the patron goddess of the city, so given a place of prominence at that temple. There were temples accommodating all sorts of deities. And, as Paul tells us in his speech, that there were altars to unknown gods. Now, we need to understand a little bit better how pagan religion worked. People of that time lived 
in constant negotiations with various deities. So for example, if you were taking a trip down a particular river, you would find out who the local god is of that area, of that river, the god of the water, and you would sacrifice to that god and, and pray for blessings to come on you from that particular deity to keep you safe, to keep you away from trouble. If you were in business, well, you better not upset Hermes, the, the god of commerce, the god who controlled various transactions in your field. So you would sacrifice to him. You would make sure that he is appeased, that he is happy with you, so nothing bad happens to your business. But what happens when a plague or something terrible falls on the city? And no one knows which god or goddess is causing it. And you've sacrificed everybody that, every god that you know. You've, you've visited all the temples. You've made all the connections thinking maybe this god is angry with us, so you brought a sacrifice to them. What happens when you've exhausted the gods and goddesses in your city? Well, then you think, maybe there's a god we don't know that is causing all this trouble. So you would go to an altar and you would say, it's sort of like, to whom it may concern kind of a sacrifice, you know. You would find an altar or, or build an altar to anybody, any other god that may be involved in the life of your city and you may not know that they are upset. And so you would bring a sacrifice to that god to appease them and to avert a particular disaster. So Paul looks at the city, the city where you have lots of temples, lots of altars. People are bringing sacrifices. They're praying to various deities. They're trying to negotiate with various gods and idols to make sure their lives go well. And he is troubled in his heart. He sees people building their whole lives on negotiations with God that don't exist. What Scripture calls worthless idols. They're running around trying to please imaginary beings at best, demons at worst, that have no control over their lives. While their religiosity is, is very busy, it's, it's utterly useless. Their spirituality is empty and ultimately based on a lie, a misperception of reality. And so Paul's spirit is, is, is provoked, it's troubled, he's, he's, he's angered, he's grieved, he's looking at this and he's saying, this isn't right. He's looking at the people and he's grieved over their lives. I wonder what you feel, if you're a Christian, I wonder what you feel as you observe our culture today. Is your heart troubled when you see the city full of idols? Now I know our idolatry is more subtle, it's more sophisticated, it's more easily rationalized. But if we look closely, we will find many altars in our own city on which sacrifices are offered. We will find many deities which are being appeased in hope of receiving blessings. We will find many temples in which devotion is pledged. Many gods are worshipped here. And in our Sunday school class, Josh had us make a list. And we, I think people did a pretty good job coming up with a pretty good list of idols. Money, success, comfort, power, pleasure, celebrities, politicians, athletes, artists. What are you feeling when you see people sacrificing their bodies, 
sacrifice in their souls, sacrifice in their families, sacrifice in their communities to those idols. What are you feeling when you see empty spirituality and useless religiosity? What are you feeling when you see blood flowing from the altar of the self? Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. We're just making idols out of our own hearts. We are finding new ways to worship something other than God. We're looking for other things to give us something we need. And we're constantly running around worshiping something, staking our lives on something, trying to figure out which deity is upset with us so we can appease them. A Christian, a person who knows God, a person to whom the truth has been revealed by grace, a person who understands reality as God sees it, which of course is the only reality, cannot be but troubled and angered and grieved by it. Because this is how God feels. When you read the Old Testament, there are so many passages where God is provoked by our idolatry. God is provoked by our injustice. God is provoked by our lies wrapped up in lies and deception. Why would it not trouble us to see our God rejected and pretend God's put in his place? It should trouble us. It should trouble us. I was thinking about what Paul may have been feeling here, and I, I remembered I used to, I used to run until a friend from church who's a personal trainer said, at your age, you should walk. <laughs> so I've, I've been walking. Um, when we lived... <laughs> this is more than you need to know about my life. I'm not complaining. I'm in good health. I'm just old. When, I, when we lived in Chicago, I used to, I used to run, and, and, and I would go on a run, and I would run towards the lake, and, and you would run through different neighborhoods on the way to the lake. And one of the neighborhoods was Boys Town. And Boys Town, <clears throat> if you don't know, or if you, certainly if you live in Chicago, you know, but Boys Town is, is a neighborhood notorious uh, for the LGBT community that lives there. And people come, actually, from other places to live there and to pursue a particular identity and particular lifestyle. And so I would run through the neighborhood, usually, or especially on Monday morning, it's kind of after the weekend. And what I felt um, was a sense of grief, was a sense of being troubled in my spirit, being provoked in my spirit, seeing the, the idolatry of the self, seeing the brokenness that's there, seeing the pretend happiness that isn't really there, seeing people staking their lives on something that isn't going to hold, that isn't going to give them what we want. It was not a feeling of condemnation in my heart. It, it was a feeling of grief. It was a feeling of pain. Seeing God not worshipped. Seeing meaning and joy and, and things that are familiar to us because we know God being out of reach to so many. Now, I could have picked many other neighborhoods in the city. It's not unusual to see and to feel for a Christian, to feel in our spirit that, that emptiness, that brokenness, that 
the twisted understanding of reality and a twisted understanding of God. I wonder if that's what Paul was feeling. And I think we all should be feeling that. We all should be feeling that in lots of places in our culture. Where we go and we see idolatry. We see people pursuing money. And we see that they're sacrificing for that idol. We see people pursuing pleasure and we see what it costs them to get it. And we see them get it and be disappointed. That should make us weep, shouldn't it? I am not saying we are free from idols, okay? Please don't misunderstand me. We're just as susceptible to those things. But we have God. God has graciously revealed himself to us. And our view of reality is radically different. And so we can grieve. So we can weep. So we can be broken in our spirits over the idolatry in our own city. Why wouldn't it trouble us? This is how God feels, and we should feel that as well. So Paul is feeling that. Many of us are feeling that today. So the question is, what's our next move? When you feel that, and when you recognize the idolatry, and you see that brokenness, what do you do next is the question. What should our response be? Well, what does Paul do here? He does not leave the city. Notice that he doesn't run away, as some Christians have done and would do today. He does not condemn and abandon the filthy pagans. He doesn't do that. Nor does he rally his Christian friends to take over the city and kick all the idolaters out. He doesn't do that either. What does he do? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul engages the Athenians. He actually goes towards them. His move is towards the idolaters, to get close to them and to reason with them, to talk with them. Yes, of course, he visits the local synagogue. That was his practice. He finds the religious community. He finds those pagans who are interested in the God of Israel. He starts with them. But very quickly, we see that he spends a lot of his time every day with those who are in the marketplace. I don't know if you have that vision. My, my image of that is Paul at Target, you know, and getting on the PA system saying, attention shoppers. <laughs> but of course, in those days, the marketplace was, was much bigger than a place of commerce where you would buy and sell stuff. It was, it, was a, it was a center, it was a cultural center of the city. The Greek, they called it the Agora. Agora was this, this, this square where you had businesses and government offices and you had philosophers and, and, and of course you had commerce and you had culture. And Paul goes right there and every day, he talks with whoever would talk with him. He just converses with people. Smart people, educated people, cultural leaders, regular people. He's just talking to people about God. And there he encounters these two kinds of philosophers. Not only in Athens, you would, you would happen to do that. Epicureans and, and the Stoics. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background of both of these schools, and you will find that even though we're talking about something ancient, there's a lot of parallels to our time today. The Epicureans were, uh, they believed that life is random. It's just kind of, things just kind of happen. It's just atoms bouncing around. 
And if gods exist, if any god or gods exist, they're not really involved. They're, at best, they're, they're far away. They just kind of left us to ourselves. And when you die, you're gone forever. They believed that to live well, to have a good life, was to live free from anxiety and pain. So the basic slogan, if we can just kind of reduce the Epicurean philosophy into one sentence, is do what makes you happy and avoid stress as much as possible. Do what makes you happy and avoid stress. Does that sound familiar? Many of us try to do that. We don't call ourselves Epicureans, but, but we're following the same philosophy of life. The Stoics were different. The Stoics believed that life is governed by some cosmic principles. They talked about some reason, this, this, this cosmic universal mind of sorts. They thought God is everywhere and God is in everything, including in every person. And when you die, you sort of get absorbed into this, this universe. Pain is unavoidable, they thought, in this life, because there's this design that's unfolding, that, that universal principle is at work, and so if pain happens, if suffering happens, that's supposed to happen. They believe that to live a good life, to live well, is to live virtuously, is to do good things and to treat others well. So their slogan, if we can reduce, again, their philosophy into one sentence, would be endure suffering and be a good person as much as possible. Endure suffering and be a good person as much as possible. So Epicureans come and they say, avoid pain, avoid anxiety, avoid stress, and, and live that kind of life. But Stoics said, no, endure pain, endure suffering, and, and do good. Now Paul is aware of these schools, and there are many other worldviews, and he's engaging with them. Notice that he is engaging with them. These unbiblical, unchristian ideas, right? He's engaging with them. He's talking to them. He's troubled over the idolatry of the city, and yet he's engaging with all these different worldviews. There are real conversations that are happening between Paul and others in the marketplace. And the philosophers don't quite know what to, what to do with Paul. They say, well, it's just a babbler. Just, you know, somebody just picked up different ideas here and there, you know, doesn't really know anything important, but just kind of a superficial person. Others say, wait a minute, no, it sounds like he's preaching foreign gods. This Jesus is a foreign god, the resurrection, what is, what is that about? And by the way, all the philosophers are appalled at the idea of the resurrection. That somehow there's afterlife, somehow there's something that's coming, judgment, that our bodies can be resurrected. That's so unusual for them to hear that they reject that out of hand. And so Paul is not thrown off by their mockery. He's not thrown off by their suspicion. As much as possible, he is engaging with them and attempting to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think we need to do that too. There are many modern-day Epicureans, who live their lives avoiding stress and pursuing pleasure. Are we engaging them in thoughtful, respectful conversations? There are many modern-day Stoics who live their lives trusting the universe. Somehow the universe is going to work it out, trying to be nice to others. Are we talking with them? Now, Paul has not limited his ministry to the synagogue, he went to the marketplace. This is a, a deliberate, strategic move on his part. And we must do that as well. We cannot limit ourselves just to our people, the religious people who share a worldview, who understand the Bible, who know Bible stories, who think God exists. 
Yes, we need to minister to them, of course. And by the way, next sermon is going to be about a community like that. Paul is not avoiding them. But he's also going to those who have no idea about the Bible, who have completely different worldviews, who have all sorts of crazy ideas about the universe and reality and ethics. And Paul is engaging them, and so should we. Let's look at how he does that, Paul's speech. Now, this teaching in the marketplace every day opens the door for a formal presentation at the Areopagus. Areopagus was an important place, and the best minds would gather, and they would assess a new teaching. They would cast a judgment on this new teaching. And so he goes there, in verses 22 through 31, we have his speech to the philosophers. Now, of course, it's probably just an outline of a much longer presentation. Typically, it would be several hours would be given to a speaker, and he would be able to make a good, solid case for whatever they believed, and it would be evaluated and argued. So I think this is just an outline of a much longer presentation, and I think it's likely cut short by the mockery of the resurrection. However, we can learn a lot from the way Paul spoke to a thoroughly pagan audience. Let me share two observations with you. First, Paul makes truth accessible. He makes truth accessible. Look at how he begins. He begins by commending the Athenians on their religiosity. He says, men of Athens, I, I, I know that you are very religious. He's actually commending them. Now, of course, we know Paul doesn't approve their idolatry. He doesn't approve all the temples that are part of their religion. But he does acknowledge their religious instinct, that, that spiritual impulse that in the heart of every person. In verse 27, Paul says that God made all people that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Then the image here is, is of people groping for something in the dark, reaching for God, trying to find him. And he says, you are doing that in some way, in some weird, twisted way, you are doing that. You're seeking God who is real. And then he points to this worship of the unknown God. And he says, I've noticed that even you are open that there's other gods out there, that maybe there's a different kind of God out there. After all, you have an altar to the unknown God. He notices that. He connects with them. He builds another bridge to them. And he says, what is unknown is not unknowable. He says, what you worship as unknown, I will proclaim to you. And he goes straight into the presentation of who God actually is. Do you see how he's building bridges? He's connecting with them. He's making truth accessible. And then he quotes from the Greek poets in verse 28. Here's another attempt to, to, to connect, to build a bridge. And by the way, Paul does not agree with all that the poets are saying. In fact, he's very selective. We have other materials where we can see the whole poem, by the way. And one of the poems he quotes is about Zeus. It's not about God. It's about Zeus. And yet he's pulling a couple of lines out of the, that poem, say, look, we agree here. I can see where, where you're going with this, but let me tell you what's really going on. Building a bridge, connecting and revealing the truth of the gospel. Now, secondly, we learn that Paul is focusing on God himself and on worship of God. Truth is accessible, it's made accessible, but it is not in any way compromised. 
It's really important to see that. Even though Paul is grieved in his spirit, he, he moves towards the idolatrous, he engages them, he's talking to the philosophers, he is respectful, but in no way is he compromising the truth. He is not changing that. He's not adjusting that. He's not making it more palatable to them. More accessible, yes, but not more palatable. And this is what he does. He focuses on the main thing. And he's very clear about what it is. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about God is the most important thing about who you are. And so Paul goes right straight to that. And he says, what we need to talk about is who God is and how we are to respond to him. Now, there are a million details he could have covered. There are a million disagreements between these two philosophical schools and the Christian thought. They're very different. And yet, what is Paul doing here? He focuses on the fundamental difference, our perception of God, our relationship to him. And so he proceeds to explain the biblical view of God. I mean, this is a, a masterful presentation. We, we know Paul is smart. We know, we know he's very good at these things. But we can take it as a template. We can learn from him. We may not do it as well as he did. We may never get a hearing at the Areopagus, but we can have lots of conversations with people where we can do a similar thing by making the truth accessible, but then giving the truth and speaking about God the way he really is and presenting him the way he really is and calling people to connect with him the way he really is. That's what Paul does. This is how he describes God. There's one God who created everything, pushing back on the idolatry. You guys have lots of gods. There's just one God who created everything, the heaven and earth. This is one God here. There's no life outside of him. Nobody else gives life. There are no other idols you need to be concerned about. All life comes from God. He governs the universe. He is completely in control. He decides where you're going to live, what you're going to do. He places those boundaries on humanity. He is sovereign over all that exists. He's in charge. It's not the river God. It's not Hermes. It's God who's in charge. You need to deal with him. He can't be manipulated like your gods. He can't be manipulated by human beings since he is self-sufficient. You know what? He doesn't need you. There's no need in God. God is a person that is completely self-sufficient. And so when you bring something to him, you don't bring it to him because he needs it and he's going to trade you something for it. He's completely self-sufficient. And yet this self-sufficient God is not far from us, Paul says. He's not distant. He's involved with his creation. And yet you can't put him in a temple. In a temple. You can't put him over the altar. He's, he's not limited in that way. He's not like us. He's not shaved by our imagination. You can't just pretend God is a certain way and he will be a certain way. You have to deal with him on his own terms as he reveals himself. And yet this God seeks a relationship with you. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to find him. And he is willing to overlook your ignorance. He's willing to overlook your idolatry if you repent. He calls us to turn away from our idolatry and to turn toward him. And by the way, this call to repentance is urgent because he's already appointed a judge. The whole world will one day be judged. And the judge is Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. 
in just a few short verses, we have an extensive biblical worldview of who God is and how we are to relate to him. A masterful presentation. He's going to the fundamental issue, our relationship with God. I think this should always be our primary concern with com in conversations with non-Christians. It's always about God. What can be more important than God? And how can we have a relationship with this God if we don't know who he is and what he's like? And how can our relationship be anything other than worship of him? And how can we worship unless we repent from our sin of idolatry? That's what Paul is doing here. And I think in verse 31, he is interrupted. I don't think 31 is, is the intended conclusion to Paul's speech. If Paul is like any other preacher, including yours truly, this is not where you end a sermon. You may get interrupted, and then you want to go back to it later. He's interrupted because they're mocking his idea of the resurrection. He's saying, that's, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, people will rise from the dead. And as a preacher, I think Paul is building up. I think he's, he's coming to the climax of the sermon where he means to focus on Jesus. He's already introduced him. He's saying he is the judge, he's the risen one, and he's ready to talk about Jesus more specifically. We know that's what he was doing in the marketplace because they were saying he preaches about Jesus and the resurrection. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to finish Paul's sermon. It's a tall order. Let me attempt to do that, at least in the way of his ideas. The God who is our creator, our sustainer, our ruler, our judge, who desires a relationship with us, who calls us to repentance from our idolatry, made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The word of God became flesh. Truth became accessible. The unknown became knowable in Jesus. And so to know God is to know Jesus as he reveals God to us. God isn't far from us because God became human in the person of Jesus. You see, the Christian gospel is not a philosophical speculation, but an account. It's a record. It's an announcement of what God has done. God came to us. God became human, and he lived among us. He lived among sinners and idolaters like me. And God himself, this God-man Jesus, God who became human, was provoked in his spirit when he saw our idolatry, when he saw our sinfulness. His heart was troubled by our sins. In Luke 13, there's a great passage where Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem and he is grieved and he is lamenting over the city. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Jesus is grieved in his own spirit. But instead of leaving the world in indignation or destroying all the sinners immediately, what does Jesus do? He goes into the city. 
He goes into the city. He comes close to sinners. And he gives his life for his people. Jesus, too, like Paul, was brought before a council. He was accused of blasphemy. He was condemned to death for treason. And this Jesus, this God-man, this person who reveals God to us, who reveals God as creator, as sustainer, as, as judge, this person is nailed to the Roman cross and left there until he could breathe no more. When Jesus died, there was darkness. And then he was buried in a borrowed tomb. The one in whom we live died. The one in whom we move and we have our being was motionless in the tomb. But on the third day, and I think Paul would expect some amens from the congregation at this point, on the third day, the God-man rose from the dead. The sacrifice of the cross of Jesus received its validation from God. Jesus died, and God said amen in the resurrection. And after spending time with his followers, encouraging them and teaching them, Jesus ascended into heaven to assume his place at the right hand of the Father as judge of the whole world. And judgment will come, we are promised, when he returns in glory. But what kind of judge is Jesus? What kind of judge is he? He is the judge that himself served the sentence deserved by the accused. He is the kind of judge that, that can declare us not guilty without any contradiction with the law of God. He is the kind of judge that can reconcile us to our creator, our sustainer, our king. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, God considered Jesus sinful, though he wasn't. He knew no sin, but God considered him as sinful. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The very nature of God is attributed to us. And so that when the judge comes and judges us in righteousness, as Paul proclaims to the Areopagus, when the judgment is proclaimed, we are seen as righteous. We are seen as God's righteousness and accepted by God. I suspect that at this point in the sermon, Paul would, would have circled back to the call to repentance. What will you do with this Jesus, he would have asked. What will you do with this risen judge? And we see three responses in verses 32 through 34. Some mocked. And friends, when we engage with, with unbelievers, when we, when we preach the gospel, when we share the gospel, as respectful as we may be, we need to accept that some will mock. Some will reject. That's a normal response to the gospel. Are you mocking Jesus today? Are you rejecting him? Another group wanted to hear more about Jesus. They were intrigued enough, but not believing yet. They wanted to talk more. They wanted to hear more answers to their questions. If you are in that category, if you're willing to listen more, investigate, and learn, I invite you to do it here with us. Do it with God's people. Any one of us would love to sit down with you 
and work through some of these questions and doubts and, and considerations. Bring your questions. Let's have important conversations about God. And the third group believed in Jesus. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others. They surrendered their lives to Jesus. Dionysius was probably among the philosophers who heard Paul's address and was convinced to abandon his worldview and become a follower of Jesus. This, this simple truth made accessible by Paul, by the preaching of the gospel, struck his heart and, and changed his life. And this is how it happens. How many testimonies have we heard, even just this fall, of people saying, I just heard it, and it struck me, and God changed me, and this is how it happens. And it happened to this man. Tradition tells us that Dionysius became the first bishop of Athens. Damaris was another convert. We don't know her story at all. But her name is now in the book of life because she too surrendered her life to Jesus. Are you in this third group? Are you in the, in the group that surrendered your philosophy? Now, you might live your life avoiding stress and pursuing pleasure, but Jesus, for the joy of reconciling you to God, endured the cross for you. Will you surrender to him? Your whole life, surrender to him. You might live your life thinking enduring suffering and and trying to be good is, is the best way to live. But Jesus suffered for you to make you truly good in God's eyes. Will you surrender to him? Your life may be full of idols, but Jesus reveals the true God. Jesus is who God is. To know Jesus is to know God. Will you repent of your idolatry and surrender to him. You might live your life believing that this is all there is. When we die, we die. We're gone forever. But there is a resurrection coming. And Jesus is, is the first one to rise from the dead, but not the last one. We will all rise. And we will live forever. The question is, will you live with God forever? Or will you live apart from him, apart from life, eternally suffering, eternally dying? Judgment is coming. Resurrection is coming. The question is, which group will you belong to on that day? Come to Jesus. Come to him and surrender your whole life to him.